0: Every couple of weeks, a wonderful lady named Karen comes to our house. Uh, Karen comes and, and cleans up. Uh, and I know Karen comes to some of your homes also. She's been to your house. and Maybe, maybe it's not Karen. Maybe you have your own Karen. You have somebody else that comes and does, does some of those things. And as far as I'm concerned, Karen is a saint. She is a hard worker. She is always cheerful and kind. And Karen... Karen knows how to keep secrets. Your mess is your mess. She doesn't tell anybody about your mess. Nothing seems to shock her. Karen knows how to keep secrets. She doesn't judge. However, I will confess that when Karen comes on Wednesday, on Tuesday nights, we hurry up and clean up the house because we don't want her to see how bad it really is. And then Karen comes and and suddenly everything is better. She's You can tell she's been there. The house is spotless. And and Grace will come home from school after Karen has been there. And and Grace will walk in and go, Karen's been here. I say, yeah, honey, Karen's been here. You know, we, we just love it when Karen comes. And then Connor comes home. And he takes a look at all that Karen has done. And it just doesn't quite satisfy him. And within minutes, it seems like we're right back where we started before... Karen has been there. Well, it was nice while it lasted, but that's the nature of chaos. And, and I'm willing to bet that even if you don't have a Connor in your house, you've got chaos. Your chaos probably just goes by a different name. There's a lesson we learned in science class years ago. That lesson was nature abhors a vacuum. Do you remember that lesson? Nature abhors a vacuum. If there is a void, if there is nothingness, it longs to be filled. And if it will not be filled with order, if it will not be filled with stability, it will be filled with chaos. Nature abhors a vacuum. But your enemy, the devil, he loves vacuums. He loves to find those empty spots, those voids in your life, in your heart. He finds those empty places and he fills them. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says, We are not ignorant of his... Does you want to remember? No? We are not ignorant of his schemes. It's right there. It's on the screen. We are not ignorant of his schemes. We've looked at several of Satan's schemes over the course of the month. And, and even though we're wrapping up this series today, that doesn't mean we've covered them all. That doesn't mean we've, we've completed the list of all of Satan's schemes. There are a lot more. But today... I want to show you one of his favorite schemes, one of his most consistent schemes. And it's one that I promise you, you have felt the sting of this before, and you will feel it again. We're looking at Matthew chapter 12 today, just three little verses. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. If you want to grab one of those blue Bibles in front of you, it's page 818. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 43. These are the words of Jesus. He says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. That's a troubling passage. I've had a lot of people ask me, what do, you, what do you make of that passage? Well, let me tell you what it's not there for. Let me tell you what this passage is not about. It's not there to teach us about the climate of the netherworld. He says that they go and dwell in waterless places. Some of your Bibles say arid places. It's not here to tell us that the netherworld is, is hot and dry, and if you go there, you should wear moisturizer and pack a few extra bottles of water. That's not why it's there. This passage is not here to tell us the economics of possession, that if you start out with one and then you add seven demons, you're, you're worse. We, we already should know that. We're not there to learn about the economics of possession. But I think what this is talking about should lead us to ask ourselves ourselves, some really tough questions. I think each one of us should take a careful look at this passage and take a careful look at our lives. And we should ask the question, who or what owns me? Who or what owns me? To whom do I belong? Uh, Who have I pledged my life to? Now, if you're a Christian, the answer should be easy. The answer should be Jesus. But, But is that really the answer? Is that accurate. Do the facts bear that out? Jesus himself said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So there needs to be something greater at work than just the confession of my mouth, the claim of my mouth. Does the content of my life make the same claim about Jesus? Is he seen as my Lord? Is he seen as the one who owns me? And you notice in this teaching there's there's something very possessive about this story of possession. Jesus says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. Did you notice that? My house from which I came. Well, he's he's been evicted, hasn't he? He's been cast out of this person, but he retains ownership. He says, that's my house. And he's able to say that because despite the confession of faith, despite saying that Jesus is Lord, despite a claim of change, there's never been a change of heart in this person. I feel like I need to be careful here. And I feel like I need to make sure you're hearing what I'm saying. I believe with 100% certainty, with 100% confidence, that salvation is a free gift from God. You do nothing to earn the gift of salvation. But at some point, you have to ask, is my life proving out the claim that I'm making? Is my life proving out the truth of my salvation? Am I living in such a way that I can be identified as one of Jesus' people? Can I examine the thoughts of my mind? Can I examine the habits of my heart and say Jesus owns this? Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 12, he calls us to... He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, I was always told that the Bible said God has not given us a spirit of fear. God's not given us a spirit of fear. What does this mean? Work out my salvation with fear and trembling. There is one thing in the universe. There is one thing in all of creation that ought to cause you to fear, that ought to cause you to tremble, and that is the holiness of God. It ought to cause you to tremble. And the more you approach God, and the more you approach His holiness, the more you ought to realize, I don't deserve to approach Him. And the more you should ask yourself, who or what owns me? And to answer that question, we need to ask ourselves another question. And that question is, what am I putting inside myself? What am I putting inside myself? Here in Matthew 12, Matthew 12 in Jesus' teaching, the, the evil spirit leaves the person... He goes out. He can't find any place to rest. And so he says, I will return to my house. And he returns to his house. And in verse 44, it says, And when when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. It it looks good. It looks nice and and clean. Everything is swept. Everything is cleaned up. All the toys are put away. Smells like the cleaning lady's been here. You know, it, it passes the sniff test. But the problem is, that's not life that's not a house that's being lived in you know what I mean I mean some amount of mess is normal if you're actually living in that place nature abhors a vacuum it it abhors that emptiness but the enemy loves that emptiness and he seeks to fill that void and if you're not going to fill it with, with good things, if you're not going to fill that void with godly things, it will be filled by the enemy's things. The void in your life longs to be filled, and it will be filled by something. And You know, I've seen those. I've seen people who have left lives of, of anger and bitterness. I've seen people who have left lives of, of unforgiveness. And in their desire for peace, they have claimed Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and, and they found peace. They found that initial peace, and, and, and you know it's there, you feel it's there, but they don't pursue peace. You know what I mean? They feel it, they love it, they appreciate it, but they don't pursue the peace. They don't put the time and energy into filling the void in their life. And after a while, you know what comes back? The, the pain comes back. The bitterness comes back. The unforgiveness comes back because that void longs to be filled and it will be filled with something. What are you filling your life with? What are you putting inside that void? That's why we're going to spend the rest of 2018 looking at the fruit of the Spirit. Because as Paul presents the fruit of the Spirit there in Galatians chapter 5, he also presents the works of the flesh. He presents the the works of the flesh, which is the chaos in our lives, and then he presents the the, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And it's a reminder that that void within us longs to be filled. And if it's not going to be filled with Jesus, it will be filled with chaos. It will be filled with the works of the flesh. It's there in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, where Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. They are obvious. You can recognize them when you see them. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. I'm going to stop right there. He goes on two more verses and and lays out the works of the flesh. Two more verses to name them all. But let's stop with those three right there. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. If we were to examine your viewing habits, if we were to examine the TV shows you watch, the movies that you watch, the things that you look at on the Internet, if we were to examine those things... How many of them would fall into one of those three categories? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. If we were to examine the books that you read, the things that you allow to, to fill your mind, how many of them would fit into one of those three categories? Sexual immorality, uh, impurity, and, and, and sensuality. You see, that's what passes for entertainment these days. That's what passes for entertainment. And if you fill, if that's what, to, what the void in your life is filled with, don't be Don't be surprised if the produce of your life continues to be more of the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are evidence. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Then he goes on. Idolatry. Wanting things that don't belong to you and worshiping things that don't belong to you. Sorcery. Now I want you, just for a moment, let me pause for a second. When you hear that word sorcery in the New Testament, you're probably thinking wizards and witches and stuff like that. Do You know what that word is? In Greek, that's the word... Pharmacia. Does that sound familiar? I went to a pharmakia last night. Pharmacy. It's where we get the word pharmacy. When you see that word in Greek in the the New Testament, it's not just talking about witchcraft. It's talking about drug abuse. It's talking about abuse and and addiction to, to drugs, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. Three verses, and he doesn't even give us a whole list, a complete list there. You cannot, listen, you cannot fill your body with a constant diet of pizza and ice cream and expect to look like a supermodel. Believe me, I've tried. It doesn't work. You will look like this. If that's all you're putting you know, if all you're living on is wings and pizza and ice cream, you'll look like this. You're never going to be a supermodel. And you cannot fill your heart with, with smut and lust and anger and jealousy and expect to produce Christ-like behavior: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It doesn't work that way. You cannot pr- expect to produce Christ-like behavior or, or a Christian life with any integrity to it at all. And it's here where we need to ask ourselves, is the aim of my life the same as the claim of my heart? Am I going in the same direction that I say I'm going? When we decided to follow Jesus, we said yes to Him. We didn't just say yes to salvation we didn't just say yes Jesus I want you to be my Savior yes Jesus I don't wanna go to hell I wanna go to heaven I want that free gift that you're giving me yes I am a wreck save me give me peace give me wholeness let me find hope and purpose but no thanks I don't need a Lord I'm gonna find my own way and I'm gonna do my own thing it doesn't work that way if I seek him as my Savior I also have to take him as my Lord you you can't do faith without faithfulness You can't claim the gift of salvation without answering the call to Christ-like behavior. If you do, you end up looking like a joke. You end up looking like a hypocrite. Or at worst, well, at worst, there's verse 45. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. The last state of that person is worse than the first. That's troubling. I don't like that. I want to tell you that the grace of God is, is big enough to cover all your sins. I know that it is, but I also know that you have an enemy and that enemy has schemes. And it might just be that one of his favorite schemes is to let you get good and comfortable and complacent with your life as it is. To make you feel safe and secure without ever worrying about your heart or your attitude or who you really belong to. There's a passage in 2 Peter chapter 2 where Peter kind of builds on what Jesus has said here in Matthew 12. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, Peter says, for whatever overcomes a person, to, to that he is enslaved. Whatever overcomes you, you are enslaved to that. And th- then he says this, and I know this is a little complicated to understand. He says, for if, if after they have escaped the defilement of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, if you've raised yourself up from your sin and you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if after you've done that, they are are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Does that sound familiar? The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Read a passage like that. I don't know what to do with it. I know I can't read a passage like that and promise you once you're saved, you're always saved. I can't do that and read that passage. And I know I can't read that passage without also going to the next chapter because it's in the next chapter, chapter 3 of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 11, where Peter says, you ought to live lives of holiness and godliness. To claim the gift without accepting the call, without filling your life with the things that that honor Jesus is to fail to understand what we have been saved from and what we have been saved for, what we've been saved to do and to be. And I'm, I'm willing to bet some of you have known the frustration that comes with this scheme. You gave your life to Jesus and you felt that initial gift of, of peace and joy, but over time you realize that that anger, that anger is still there. And that unforgiveness is still there and that lust is still there and that bitterness is still there. The sins that you struggled with before, they're still there. And, and even worse, now, now that you know salvation, you can't forgive yourself because you keep going back to those things. And now it's worse because you feel like you've failed yourself and you've failed God and the last state is worse than the first. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, Verses 31 and 32, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you, be put away from you. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, that's the key forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's not an easy key, but it's the key. And it will take a lot of work, and you'll struggle, and you'll fail, and you'll try again and again. Your enemy, your enemy, the devil, would love for you to just give up. He would love for you to just wallow in that misery, but we are not ignorant of his schemes. If you don't let Jesus fill the emptiness inside you, Satan will gladly do it instead. If you don't let Jesus fill the emptiness inside you, Satan will gladly do it instead. Don't give up. Don't give in. It's not easy, but it is worth it. Do not be ignorant of his schemes. You know, we've barely scratched the surface. In four weeks, we've barely scratched the surface of what Satan's schemes are. The best way to recognize his schemes is to move so close to the heart of jesus that it becomes the center of your focus the best way to recognize the schemes of satan is to know the heart of your savior to know jesus to love him and to let others and to to love others through him and you won't fall for satan's schemes just one other thing i want to say is that passage in ephesians 6 that we love when Ephesians 6, Paul describes the armor of, of the Christian, the armor of God. He says, "Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes." And he describes the armor, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of feet, the, the shoes of feet, the shoes of peace, the belt of truth. And he says, "Take up the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I love that picture. And he says, "If you put these things on, you will be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes." But it's in that same passage, Ephesians 6, verse 12, where Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, people are not our enemies. Other people are not our enemies. Now, our enemy, Satan, would love for you to think that. He would love to get you so concentrated on on other people that that we're fighting amongst ourselves, that we're fighting each other, that we're upsetting each other. Anything to keep the attention off of Him. Now, I'm not saying this to let other people off the hook because sometimes people do bad things. But you need to realize this. Hurting people hurt people. Can you remember that? Can you say that with me? Hurting people hurt people. Hurt people. You keep loving. You keep forgiving. You keep showing them Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we've given our attention this month to Satan's schemes. We've read your word, and your word has warned us. And we have felt the attacks, and we know the need to be aware, to be prepared to be on the defensive, but rather than letting Satan and his schemes hold the center of our attention, would you draw us closer to you? Would you help us to fall so in love with you and, and in showing your love to each other that Satan does not stand a chance of pulling us away from you? And Father, for those people in our lives who are, who are completely wrapped up in Satan's schemes, for the people who are so far away from you that they don't know your love, they don't know the peace and the forgiveness that you offer would you show us ways to to encourage them to to bless them to love them to forgive them and to show us the love of Jesus to your glory it's in Jesus name we pray amen go in peace